0: that's right chumbacasino.com has over a 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes
1: chumbacasino.com hey everybody welcome back to word balloon this is john sutras with a few show notes um trying to make the best of this situation as we all are and i know you are as well uh thank you for downloading the show uh, I will try to be your companion and give you some hours of distraction with good entertainment, great conversations with a lot of new people and old returning guests as well. I hope you're enjoying the show. If you have questions or comments about the show, you can email me, john at wordballoon.com. Uh, make sure you follow me on all the uh, social networks, Facebook, John Suntris, Twitter, at John WordBalloon, Instagram, WordBalloon. I have my YouTube Word Balloon channel, and I've been doing a bit more video. I hope you will uh, check it out and uh, subscribe and like uh, the videos or dislike the videos, but uh, get involved in uh, some of these live streaming conversations that I'll be having in the days and weeks ahead. Maybe one more spot, and then we'll get to the show. As always, thank you very much for your attention and patience. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon. The Comic Book Conversation Show. John is here, it's time for part two of this amazing conversation with Mike Gold. Mike, once again, uh, was uh, the DC marketing guy uh, starting in the mid-70s and uh, did a lot of work for them. Went on to First Comics in the early 80s and uh, was one of the big editors there, working on uh, books like John Sable Freelancer and Grimjack and Warp and American Flag, to name a few, The ba- the Badger with Mike Barron. Uh, then he uh, came back to D.C. as a group editor under Dick Giordano and uh, helped shepherd some of the best books of the mid-80s, the post-crisis era, things like Legends, an amazing uh, event comic that John Byrne drew, and uh, The Flash, and uh, Green Arrow, the, starting with the Longbow Hunters, Mike Grell's amazing thing that started with that prestige format, and then moved on to uh, the uh, 10-year Mike Grell run on Green Arrow that really was a signature run. And uh, as I say in the conversations, I think uh, Steve Amell got older, grew into um, the Mike Grell Green Arrow. As, uh, as the seasons progressed. Um, you could say Legends was the inspiration for Legends of Tomorrow. Um, and uh, his Flash run under Mike Barron, uh, Mike Barron was the writer, but uh, that Flash run with Wally West as the Flash was a very significant thing. These are comics that I would say were more mature in their storytelling because they came out of that Dark Knight Watchman period. They weren't grim and gritty, they were just good. And they were smarter. And I know as, as someone that was, you know, uh, in college and coming out of college when all this stuff was happening, I just felt like, you know, wow, I'm, I'm really glad I'm still reading comics because now they're they're smarter than they used to be. There's a, there's a little more depth to them. The art got more interesting. And, uh, you know, Mike was a part of all of that. So he's got great stories to share with you. And uh, again, if you if you heard part one, you know, uh, part two is equally entertaining. We go off on more tangents. We talk a bit about some uh, comedy and other, uh, you know, things that, uh, again, Mike was able to experience. Uh, he's, he's kind of like that Dos Equis guy, the most interesting man, because Mike is filled, of, filled with stories. And I'm telling you, when we get together and we sit down for a meal or at a convention after hours and we just kind of hang out and chat. I am I'm thrilled with uh, Mike's stories. They're always entertaining, and I'm happy to share more of them with you in part two of my conversation with Mike Gold on today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you greatly, League, for your support via Patreon. Patreon.com slash Word Balloon. That's the place to go. If you want to subscribe to Word Balloon, you don't have to subscribe. I want as many people out there to listen to Word Balloon and appreciate it, especially during this tough time. But, and I also know that this is a tough financial time for a lot of people as well. So I don't ask any people to spend money that they don't have. If you can swing it, if you enjoy Word Balloon and the uh, kind of entertainment I try to bring to you every week here, um, you notice I've uh, been doubling and tripling the Word Balloon output uh, really since the virus began. And uh, I'm happy to do that because uh, we're we're all sitting around and it's a chance for us to uh, talk and, and provide great entertainment for you. So if you like what you're hearing, and if you can swing a dollar a month or the price of a comic book a month, consider subscribing to Word Balloon, patreon.com slash Balloon. Also consider picking up a book from Aftershock Comics. Now, I know that uh, uh, the comic industry is on pause, another reason why it's easier for me to talk to some of these people right now. Aftershock is there for you uh, beyond your regular books Why don't you pick up a graphic novel from Aftershock Comics and uh, check things out? Uh, They have got great genre-bending ideas from some of the top names in comic books, from Cullen Bunn and Tim Seeley to Paul Jenkins and Brian Azzarello and Marguerite Bennett and Stephanie Phillips, um, Phil Hester. So many of my friends that are in the business just turning out excellent product under the Aftershock banner that is worthy of your attention. And you will find great books and great ideas from Aftershock Comics. Don't take my word for it. Go to their website. You'll find full story descriptions, art preview pages, and the way to order these books digitally at AftershockComics.com. Okay, let's get into it now. Part two of my conversation with Mike Gold. Um, Right at the beginning, uh, we talk about him leaving First Comics and coming back to D.C., and uh, being the group editor uh, in front of all of these amazing books that came out in the mid-80s at DC, he took a lot of his first comics creators with him. And uh, some very seminal books happened during uh, Mike Gold's time as a group editor from DC. Uh, we also talk about a lot of other entertainment and, uh, you know, interesting ideas and things that happened during uh, Mike's uh, life, frankly. Uh, he's, he's had a very interesting life and has gone into a lot of interesting directions. So and he's uh, he's been a very good uh, dare I say mentor to me. As I say at the end of the conversation, I had a real crossroads period about four years ago. I'm in another crossroads period now, and, and Mike was very encouraging and a big supporter of Word Balloon, and he he provided an outside perspective, uh, and it was great to hear from an industry guy say you got something here. Don't don't take it for granted. Maybe fan the flame a little bit more. Um, I think you can develop this and make it into something even bigger. That was my goal back then, and this is my goal right now. Part two on today's word balloon. So, what happened? Like, did First continue without you? Because how did you get back to DC then after the first experience?
0: Well, the uh, board of directors of First Comics, of which I was a member, um, we had a lot of. There were five people on the board, and we had a lot of five, to, a lot of three to two votes. Uh, with me being part of the two, uh, okay. on where the company should go and where our priorities should be, and you know we were we were hurt pretty bad by the mergers and of the different um, comics distributors. Back in those days, there were like a dozen different distributors, and some of them went out of business, and a lot of them didn't pay their bills, and uh, you know it was we had a severe cash flow problem. Um, it would be nice if we had more more money to flow around anyway, but we were doing pretty good, but but the money wasn't coming in on time. And I had this weird feeling that like, if you don't pay the talent on time or as close on time as humanly possible, you're going to lose your talent and then you're going to get younger, newer people, which might be great fun, but you're not going to sell the way you did before and and ultimately you're going to go out of business. And whereas you can cut a deal with the printers and, and you know the, the engravers and those types of people because, you know, they're in business and they've got these presses and you know, they'll 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 cut you a deal to keep your business. Freelancers can't afford to do that. We disagreed severely on that. And when and it after a while, and for about a year, it drove me completely bug fuck. Um, what happened was the business manager, who was the other vote in that three to two vote that happened every 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 day, mm-hmm. right? he left the company. He decided you know he couldn't he couldn't deal with that. He wanted to do other things, so I lost my only support there and um after a little bit when I realized that um, Sisyphus should have quit a long time ago <laughs> i i I did too. <laughs> I took a leave of absence and I went up to the border of Upper Wisconsin and and Upper Michigan. Okay. Beautiful forests there. It was October. The leaves were changing. I spent two weeks just chilling out. I had this wonderful time, and I came home and back to Evanston, and my answering machine. Remember those answering machines? It's, you, you kids out there, we have these things called cassette tapes, and they would record these messages that people would leave you. I had seven job offers on that, on that answering machine. Wow. And uh, the first message was from Dick Giordano, who I love. And the last message was from Dick Giordano saying, no, I mean it. <laughs> So I took this offer from D.C. And it was a wonderful offer. What 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 happened was I was I came out. D- Dick and I had a long talk. And then, you know, Jeanette and Paul, we all talked. And I said, well, you know, I have creative freedom pretty much w- over first. Why would I want to give that up? And Dick says, well, we can give you almost all of that creative freedom. He didn't bullshit me. He knew th- that I would take it to, to ends where, you know, like wasteland. Uh, but yeah. But luckily, I did it slowly. And uh, he says, well, you know, we'll let you have most of all of that creative freedom. And also, we'll pay your, your people on time. And I says, oh, yeah. Okay. You win. I gotcha, Fine. And I moved into, well, I moved to Connecticut. Because Dick lived in Connecticut. He says, you don't want to move back to New York. And, uh, and he was right, actually. I, I was now 38 years old or 36 years old, something like that. And... Um, New York was too expensive and too noisy Sure. at that time. Um, Today, you know, I mean, New York is a totally different place. It has a whole set. I love being in New York. I miss not being in New York, as I haven't... I used to go in at least a couple times a month. um, But obviously, I haven't gone anywhere near Manhattan for two months.
1: Sure, of course.
0: If not longer. uh, Or near... Any of my neighbors' houses, <laughs> you know, which is where she was. just like well, everybody. Yeah.
1: Else. Well, of course, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm going to talk move about that f- to Mongo
0: because yeah. it's safer in Mongo. And their their leader there, being the merciless, he's a better dude.
1: <laughs> well, um, so you moved back to Connecticut now. You're now you're in charge of how many books initially? Were you in charge
0: of thousands? It had. It it just didn't even make sense. I had a team of editors, really, really good people. So you
1: were you a group editor then?
0: Uh, I was a group. I I I kind of created the concept of group editor. I didn't. I I just did it my way. And later on, they said, "Oh, well, now you're a group editor." I said, "Oh, well, um, thank you. You're not taking anybody. (laughs) No." So, okay, fine. Uh, Barbara Kiesel and uh, Bob Greenberger, and really good people. Elliot and oh,
1: had a great time. These were all your uh, editors. These were all the people yeah. who worked under you. Go
0: on. I edited anywhere from maybe six to ten projects at a time. Some of them were there for me to start and then turn over to one of the younger editors. At that time, all those people except Elliot were was a younger editor, newer editor. Um, And then we brought in people like Katie Named and folks like that. Who uh, Brian from Chicago. Um, Who who
1: from Chicago? Brian Augustine. Oh, sure. Of course. And, um,
0: uh, you know, I I would hand off certain titles to them because it was already up and running, and that's how they can... There's no school that teaches you how to edit comics, um, mostly because our insane asylums are full. So... (laughs) That's how I did it, and uh, my pro- my department was probably handling about thirty projects at any one time, about a third of which were under my direct influence, in one way or another, either as editor or as sort of a handoff editor. Um, it worked out well. We, we, I'm pretty proud of the books we did. Green Arrow, oh, yeah, Flash. Wound up on TV. I, I I'm the one who named Legends Legends, and that's on TV. So uh, it's not that I'm waiting for my check. I know I did it on staff. Still, um, it was nice. It, it well, was good.
1: Well, yeah. Let's go. I mean, because yeah, Legends was the first big post crisis event. Am I right? In the yes, timing.
0: Yes. But I, also- I actually started it while I was still in Chicago because Dick had such a hard time getting any other Crisis sequels off the ground because everybody would would interfere and everybody would be very protective of their characters. And he thought it would be better if I got the whole thing started far away from everybody else. Uh, so I put John on it. <laughs> now John's working for DC, and uh, although he and Bob Greenberg had been talking about some <laughs> projects, uh, but just, so now I'm working with John. And Len Wein comes out to Chicago, and we're plotting the whole thing. And John Byrne, who had just moved from Evanston, he lived a few blocks away from me. You know, we brought him in as the artist. So when when I when I hit New York City in uh, January 70, uh, 86 I uh Legends was was already up and running.
1: Okay. And it's um do you, you know who who's in the lineup again for Legends? What I remember too uh, is in particular Cosmic Boy from the Legion uh being yeah. one of the key players. Yeah. But uh and the Demon? Am I right about the Demon?
0: I don't recall.
1: Okay. It's um
0: a, It's a long time ago.
1: Yeah, I know. I'm sorry, man. Exactly. Forgive me for for putting you on the spot. No, um,
0: not at all. I my, you don't Take responsibility for whatever living brain
1: cells I missed. <laughs> You're doing good, Mike. What are you talking about, man? We're going back to the '60s and '70s. You're doing uh, fine, man. It's it's cool. <laughs> but but all right. Well, I the books I remember in particular that were under your uh, uh, you know run were uh, Mike well doing a, uh, first the Green Arrow Longbow Hunters miniseries, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Suicide Squad, Hawk World with Tim Truman.
0: Well, actually, uh, Suicide Squad was not mine. Um, that was oh. Bob Green. It was in my Oh, group. that was Bob's. Interesting. <clears throat> but, but it spun off from Legends.
1: Okay, yes, yes, yes. I. And then that makes sense. Of course, that was the, that was the sequel from, or a, a sequel book coming out of Legends. All right, so so what am I missing? Uh, like I said, so Hawkworld, though, correct, about Hawkworld?
0: We did uh, The Flash. We did... Um, uh, Wow, why is
1: my brain so? Working? So, wait, let's I, hold, I, on I, on, on the, hold on on the flash for a second. So, that's when Wally West took over after Barry died, and William Messers Lopes and Mike Barron. Uh,
0: Mike Barron was the first writer when uh, we actually had a storyline that was killed. Uh, I won't go into detail, but it it, it bothered me. Uh, the, the publisher did not want to take that step into doing the story about AIDS, and oh, wow, and interesting. We, yeah, and it's her prerogative as publisher. I'm not. I'm not denying that. Uh, but we've been sort of leading up to that for that entire first year's run. So when that got 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 spiked, um, I kind of left the project. I, I turned it over to to Barbara Kiesel, who was in my group, and um, Bill Loeb's. We brought Bill Loeb's in as the writer because Mike didn't want to do it because his story. Was killed. Yeah. Was treated with disrespect. Yeah. And I, I understood that. I worked with Bill on the very beginning, but I didn't, you know, in terms of conceptualizing where do we go from here, okay, I on, on what we had been doing, just so he knew what was going on in our minds. And uh, he and and uh, Barbara took it over from there. Butch Geiss was the original artist. Yes, of course. He was, the, was the artist on, on my entire run. Um, and I still respect and admire butch's work like nobody's business oh he's a
1: genius absolutely man
0: he did a cover for uh dynamite a couple of shadow covers that if if he still has and i ever make it to his house he won't have i understand (laughs) he won't have i'll just steal it that's all there is to it sorry
1: I, i get it no i get it that's so funny
0: and I, well, I should point out that Jim Strankle li- lives near uh, Tim Truman, and, and I never stopped off at Jim's place to steal his shadow work, so these are good covers.
1: <laughs> what is it? Seriously, man, and uh, both, and I'll say this, uh, 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 Gary Gianni uh, on those great uh, Dark Horse uh, shadow uh, books, yeah. he was an amazing artist, and his oh. brother, who sadly just passed away, Tom. Uh, yeah. I, um, I have... Yeah. Uh, we had lunch like six weeks ago, seven you weeks know, ago. You know, I was talking to Hillary Barta on the phone, Hilary. and he said the same, and you might have been at that lunch because, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it
0: was a full yeah. yeah, it was, uh, yeah, uh, it, it hurt because I, I I really got to know John better at that lunch than I ever had before. It was a small lunch. It was 24
1: yeah. no, Tom's a Tom is a great guy, and I have – he did a he did a shadow sketch at a con and it was just on his table for 50 bucks. And I'm like, uh, going home with me, man. He's like, Oh, that's great. Thank you. And I'm like, dude, you're amazing. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, Gary's the bigger name and certainly in comic circles and stuff, but Tom was a wonderful fantasy, right? Uh, artist as well. Beautiful painter. And, uh, yeah, you know, so yeah. And it's just heartbreaking, man. now he, uh, he had a last. His last, he, his his last website, few years of life were really, really rough.
0: They were. Uh, his website is still up, and I strongly yeah. encourage anybody who's not intimate with his work to get that way.
1: Thomas have, Thomas Gianni did uh, t- t- two ends G I A N N I. Yeah, thomasgianni.com. dot com. He's uh, yeah. Uh, we 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 all miss him, and, it, and and yeah, it was very recent, and it it really does hurt. It was only a month ago.
0: It was a month ago. Yeah, it was yeah. a couple weeks after I saw him.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: And uh of course I am known as the Angel Death of Death. I'm, I'm Stop. <laughs> uh, uh, but the tre- the checks don't bounce, okay?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, so legends um again uh Flash uh talk about Green Arrow and Longbow Hunters because that was the first big prestige format mini series following Dark Knight.
0: It was the first one and in point of fact after I talked Mike into it, and I'll get to that in a second, um, uh, that's when Dark Knight started up. And when I when I saw the format, I, I said, "Oh, let's do Longbow this way." And Giordano thought that was a great idea, and Jeanette thought it was a great idea, and everybody thought it was a great idea. Um, Mike didn't know what the hell I was talking about, but but. I was able to explain it to him enough so that he was able to wrap his mind around it. And and we we really, and he really took advantage of it. Like nobody's business. He really knew how to play into that format. I talked him into it rather simply because he, he, um, was not getting along. Well, had not been getting along well with DC, um, over the warlord. He, uh, when the DC implosion happened, Warlord became retroactively became a bimonthly title. Now, in order to make room on the schedule for that, they canceled Star Slayer, which was originally going to be a DC project, and that's one of the projects I worked on with uh, with Ross Andrew. And so, so Star Slayer gets shit canned. Right. Warlord becomes a monthly retroactively so mike who was never really intimate with the deadline uh was now a couple of decades behind (laughs) that deadline so they decided to give him an inker to help him catch up and um they gave him vinnie coletta
1: oh boy wow there's two styles that absolutely don't go together
0: no, it, Mike for some reason felt like he was being punished for the book, his creation, going monthly. In um, point of fact, Mike came out to Chicago after this happened for a. Um, we had these mini cons at the uh, Pick Congress Hotel. Yes, uh, yes. And he came in. We we were doing like this two day mini con, and he came down from Wisconsin. And uh, I I. I Say, Mike, I got some news for you, but you got to promise, promise me you won't embarrass me. I said, I'm not going to embarrass you. And I said, no, you got to promise. And he gets mad at me. He goes, all right, I, pr- I promise. I'm not going to embarrass you. I said, okay. Last night, Vinnie Coletta was arrested in a gambling raid. He was on his knees. Nuts. <laughs> and Mike did a vertical leap twice his length. <laughs> He's not the tallest guy in the world. I was going to say, small guy, go on. But it was very impressive, and and it let out a whoop that would would just make the entire state of Texas just shut up. (laughs) You know, wow, like like that. And I said, "I told you not to embarrass me." (laughs) So that was pretty much what was going on. Mike finally got tired of this thing with Vinny. They kept on saying, "No, no, no, you'll get caught up, and everything will be fine." And he got caught up, and nothing was fine. So. Uh, he held back the next issue and hanged it himself. Uh, I was not part of this. I was not with the company. <clears throat> not part of this at all. And uh, after that, the editorial director and, and the new publisher of DC, my friend Paul, uh, said uh, nothing favorable towards Mike. The two of them had a parting of the ways. And, he, wow. had no one of ever going back to D.C. So when I told him that I was over there, he said, oh, that's too bad. I said, well, I got a project for you. And he says, yeah, I'm not going to do it.
1: Hold on one second, because I think I stepped on you, and I want to make this clear. So Mike, because when Paul got the the publishing job, their falling out led to Mike saying, I'll never work for D.C. again. Right. Go on.
0: Right. Well, it was because of that warlord incident.
1: Right, okay, understood, yes, yes, yes And it was also, again, because I want to make sure I understood It was a bi-monthly, they made it a monthly And that gave Mike more pressure And they put Vinny on the book and everything Right Okay, okay
0: And and I'm being upfront here I mean, it's not that Mike's dittling performance was pristine But it wasn't three months later, whatever it wound up being Until they did this maneuver Which they didn't really, I don't think they had to do it that way But they couldn't talk about it doesn't matter. It's ancient history. So I said, okay, well, I got a I got a project for you. He says, Well, I'm not gonna do it. And I said, Well, will you hear me out? And they said, Yeah, I'll hear you out, but I'm not gonna do it. And I said, Okay, I wanna revive Green Arrow. I want him to do a, a Green Arrow series, a regular monthly series for his first time ever. I want to start it off with a with a mini-series that you would draw, and after that you would just write the regular series, Uh, do the covers and all, you know, the stuff you enjoy doing. Um, And he says, why me? And I said, well, you've done it before, you like the character, you're an archer, you know archery, you can bring verisimilitude to the series, a greater degree of verisimilitude. Uh, But more important, the way I envision this character, I envision him as an urban hunter. And Mike stopped. He said, Urban Hunter. And I went, yeah, that's that's the way I see him. Now, if he asked me, well, what do you mean by that? I would have been up Schutz Creek. But I said, <laughs> Urban Hunter. And he went, yeah, that works. I'm in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, knowing Mike from the few conversations we've had, that makes sense. That's terrific, man. Goddamn, what a great run. Good Lord. I well, honestly man, and again, I was already a fan hell of his art going back to his Legion years. Loved John Sable. Absolutely loved John Sable. And yeah, man, all of a sudden alongside this older Batman, Ollie aged, at least it felt in the comics and suddenly was a slightly more mature version of himself.
0: Yeah, we had decided that that he that Oliver was sort of the de facto oldest DC superhero work. Well, we never really enunciated that way, but but that was that was our take on it. And uh, because if you if you say so, then somebody's going to try to jump. Sure. You. So
1: <laughs> Bob Rosiekus is online too to tell us we're wrong. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, Nelson was still alive, so you
1: know. Yeah. Oh no! I hope to talk to Bob soon. Absolutely. Go on.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we, we, Bob's a good guy. Great uh, guy. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. No problem, buddy. I, I lost where I was. Um, um,
1: uh, so making Ollie the most, uh, the oldest uh, DCU uh, character.
0: And the reason why I wanted him to be the oldest was because I wanted that Peter Pan thing to come out a little bit more blatantly. Because really, if you think about it, the superhero myth is a Peter Pan myth. And I want I thought Oliver was best suited for that. He he was Green Arrow because he saw this need and he won't grow up.
1: I hear you. Yeah. Uh,
0: you know? And yes. and and that was the way Mike was playing him. So you know, it, it, I thought it was perfect, and it, it did turn out to be a match made in heaven. It was great for the character. We did coming, you know, we did a couple of spin off miniseries and stuff, plus plus Black Canary that Mike uh didn't write but was part of the whole thing. Uh, we did well over 100 issues, so
1: yeah, yeah,
0: it, it was a good run.
1: Oh and, my god, great and, run! Good lord, and, the characters that, that he developed Eddie Fries, the CIA oh, guy that he would run into, the dirty tricks guy. Um, really? no, it was a smart adult in the best way, a mature comic in terms of its themes, not, not, you know, tits and, and, and a lot of it, violence, although there was a little bit of that, not tits per se, but yeah, I mean, it was dude again. And I mean, especially as someone, uh, of, of college age and it was, it was fantastic. I, it blew my mind. <laughs>
0: well, thank you. I, 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 uh, I still get some pushback from some folks who, who are upset about uh, black canaries, uh, high heels. Um oh, Jesus! Which we endeavored to change, and I, when Sarah Byam wrote the, the the spinoff series, she she got it down perfect because she knew what she was writing about. Um, but up until then, it was like my response would be like, "Yeah, okay, but that's what black canaries always look like." Right. And by the way, people can't fly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I know Wonder Woman had a, a, I've heard Wonder Woman fans, uh, young and old, complain boots or high heels as well. But go on.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, okay, it's comics. But, I mean, I get the point. And it took me a little while to understand that the verisimilitude that I believe you have to maintain in storytelling was affecting a good percentage of our readership. They didn't buy it. So, therefore, we had to change. Okay. We weren't getting it across. It doesn't matter right, wrong, or indifferent. And, there, and it, it is, I mean, yeah, in the real world, A, she couldn't run in those things. B, she'd probably be kind of cold in, in, in those tights. Yeah. And C, this drop-dead gorgeous superhero who just walks on water. Come on. They're all superheroes. Yes. Yeah. So, so you gotta call it right, and if part of the audience looks at a certain element and says that doesn't work, the very least you have to do and it sometimes takes a while is pay attention,
1: sure no, that's cool. that's fair. no, and I mean, you know what you would you think thirty years later when it's suddenly you know the hottest show on the c w and spawns this entire universe? you know I at first. It's, it's interesting, as it went on, Amel, as he got older, became kind of more and more like, you know, that Grell kind of Green Arrow, rather than that rebooted, too young uh, Green Arrow, I thought, initially.
0: He also learned how, I don't want to say to act, he was acting all the way, but he became a much better actor very quickly on that show. Agreed. You could I mean if, if you watch the first season by the end of the first season this guy had it and by the some point in the second season you know you couldn't imagine anybody else doing it he was he was he was terrific um, and Mike was was very involved in the uh, initial production that's not unusual these days you may have seen uh, Tony Isabella and Trevor Van Eden uh, uh literally on black lightning the last episode of the season uh which i thought was really hilarious and very cool yes Uh, and mike's you know mike was there he was talking with the you know everybody involved and and um they consulted with him and he provided some artwork for it and um you know he was he was he was brought in at the at the very beginning um At least for that first season. I'm not sure how much involvement he had after that. Uh, But uh, that was a great thing. That was a nice thing. When we did the original Flash TV show, um, Bill...
1: John Wesley Ship show from the early 90s.
0: Yeah, Bill and Brian Augustine and Bobby Greenberger and I were, um, were out there. We're out in Hollywood. Working on that show with those folks, it was, and that was a terrific experience. And as I said, I worked on the Superman movie and a few of the other movies. I spent two days with um, Christopher Reeve just discussing who Superman was because he never read the, the comics as a kid and he never, he never saw the TV show. So for him, it was a blank slate and that was wonderful. It was wonderful to be part of that, to having these discussions with him. And we're working with, uh, you know, Dick Donner, who's one of the nicest guys on earth and one of the most gifted.
1: Yes, on both accounts. It it comes through on uh, his interviews. And, you know, uh, that's Jeff Johns' mentor. And I know uh, Jeff has told me so many great stories about working with Dick over the years and just their, their, you know, kind of father-son relationship and everything.
0: One of these days, and I haven't seen, I, I rarely see Jeff. We seem to be on opposite coasts. But one of these days I, I got to tell him my experiences on that Superman movie. <clears throat> Excuse me. He would have uh, I think he I think he'd enjoy that. I had such a wonderful time talking with him. Him and Mankowitz, it was great.
1: I bet man, oh my god, Tom Mankowitz, great writer, uh great James Bond writer as well as fixing that Mario Puzo script. No disrespect meant to to Puzo, but again, and I'm sure you read you might have read the original screenplay, I know Jeff has, and Jeff was telling me, and some of the stuff people already know that like he had a kojak cameo happen yep. you know goofy stuff like that it was it was more of a silly script as opposed to the as you said verisimilitude that I think Donner insisted on, and Mankowitz provided with his rewrites
0: the game changer for our medium for the entire comics medium, and the reason why Superman brought so much respect into the medium is because they took it seriously because they played it for real. That movie. Um, I mean, it was a, it was a very good movie for a wide variety of reasons, but the most important to me is the fact that they didn't play down to
1: anybody. I know what you mean. Yeah. No, it's a, yeah, it's no, it's great. And really Reeves, Reeves, physical uh transformation in as both characters that wonderful scene where Lois is getting ready and she's off screen and for a second he's thinking about revealing his identity and all of a sudden he goes from slightly crouching as Clark he's got the glasses on he takes the glasses off he looks like he grows three inches because he straightens up and his voice suddenly drops and Lois uh, I've got something to tell you and then all of a sudden he decides no, I, you know gee if we're not hurt you know Moving fast, we're going to miss the movie or whatever they were doing, and right. it's great because that kind of physicality that that Reeves brought to both sides of Superman, and and it, and truly it continued even to even into that terrible Canon Fourth movie. Again, back to what we were saying earlier: uh, moments like <laughs> moments of of. of a good, good things like uh, you know we were talking about the Justice League movie I don't know if we're talking on there or off there but you know yeah I mean the, there's moments in Superman 4 where Christopher Reeve is still you know showing some great Clark and Superman moments
0: absolutely absolutely and you even saw a little of that on his a couple his couple appearances on Smallville
1: yes I love but, Dr. Swan that was so great but, so great that he could do but, that
0: absolutely absolutely it was meaningful just to see that
1: God, um, yes. Oh, what an yeah, episode. Yeah, that, that's that, that, That's
0: deep for me. That was just a very deep oh, moment.
1: And they bring back the John Williams music, and yes. it's just this wonderful, like, oh, my God, now I know who I am. And it it just, it was playing on so many levels. You're just like, holy shit, look at this. Isn't this amazing?
0: It really worked. It worked, it worked beautifully.
1: And like you said, it stems back from that demand of realism that Donner and Mankiewicz needed and, uh, you know, we give Miller and go, uh, I, I think that's how you say, uh, their mm-hmm. names, uh, the, the, the Smallville pr- producers and going for that kind of realism as well. Yes.
0: And, and really when you t- talk about the CW and, and the CWDC work, that's where it started and they, sure. wrote, and they pay tribute to that. So uh, they're very respectful of their, of all of their roots. Last time, oh, it's not, that's not true, but the, I had this weird conversation during the Superman shoot with Christopher. He was on 57th street, about 10 stories up dangling from wires for about three hours. (laughs) And, um, my takeaway from that is I, at some point I finally said, what if you have to go to the bathroom? And he says, do not say that word. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the beautiful thing is when when we were shooting out in um out by the old New York Daily News building which was the the Daily Planet in the those first movies. Sure. Um that's when the New York blackout happened. And and nobody there knew it for about a half hour it seemed, because you know they had their own generators and, and they had the big spotlights up there so that you know you could they could light the building for the night scenes, and and there was this blackout and we were two blocks from Times Square and we didn't have a clue for a bit. Wow. For, yeah, that was weird. That was really strange. Jesus.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no that's honestly man well again this is something we'll uh we should get back to in the future as far as uh delving into into more superman you know good good stories about superman the movie that's that's great man god i'm gonna i'll i have to make a note to uh you know like i said hopefully i'll be talking to jeff in a week and uh i i I will definitely bring that up so too much you're killing me man this is this is amazing um so what about what about hawk world
0: um, Hawk World was interesting. Uh, DC had tried to relaunch Hawkman hundreds of times. Yes, and the one thing I, I hasten to point out is that it wasn't even really successful during Julie's period when he did the first relaunch. Um, they did a, a three issue tryout with that beautiful uh, Joe Kubert
1: art, and it didn't. Who, who still- was writing? Who was writing that uh, one? Gardner Fox. Gardner Fox, interesting. Oh, you mean, no, wait a minute. Was that the original run, or is this... Uh... This is, like, 1959. Okay, yeah, the original run, sure. Of course. Well, oh, no, that's the, uh, that's the you know, quintessential Silver Age stuff. Absolutely. But right. that wasn't successful.
0: Not terribly. They did a second three-issue tryout, and that wasn't... A- Successful, although my guess is is that it did better than the first because the the mandate came out to put in superhero features in all of the the anthology books, and Julie decided to put um, Hawkman into a uh, mystery in space as a backup feature to uh, Adam That's Strange, right. and then the two of them for about five or six issues, you know, shared the book, and then they did this one wonderful crossover, and then Julie left the book. I think Julie did one more issue, and Carmine left a book with him to do Batman. They both left to do Batman. Okay, and,
1: yeah, 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 Inventino, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Was a great artist, but Jack Schiff uh, and his folks who were editing the, uh, his team, who were editing the book just... Didn't have a flair for it, and then they, they kind of merged it with the Atom later on. It never really was that successful. Um, so Tim comes to me. I, I have this thing about I was director of, develop, of editorial development at that point in time, and he said, and, and Hawkman was on the list, and so I was kind of looking for something there. And Tim comes up to me, he says, "Look, I want to do a tribute to Gar, meaning Garth Fox." Yeah. And we talked about it a lot. And I'm still not 100% certain that it would be obvious that he was doing a tribute to Gardner. He was, and it's obvious when somebody tells you that. And you go back and read it. But at the time, it, it was very different, I thought. Beautiful. I mean, God, it was, the artwork was, was brilliant. Yes. Go, go figure, he was trained by Joe Kubert. So we do have that sort of loop there.
1: Interesting.
0: Uh, K.K. Al- Alcatena was was the Inker. He was brilliant. Um, it, it, it worked out very well, uh, and it sort of you know it worked out well enough for us to to actually do a Hawk World series after that, which did fine. Although after a bit, uh, you know, when J- John took over, uh, after a bit, um, we they, we changed the name to Hawkman because. More people were familiar with that.
1: Sure. So wait, was Tim was Tim writing and drawing Hawkworld until John took over?
0: Yeah, he drove. The, he he did the the, the mini
1: series, right?
0: Prestige four man series, and then uh, Graham Nolan uh, took over to, to, to drew it for Tim and John.
1: Oh, I forgot that Graham drew it. Okay, very cool. Yeah,
0: and Graham did some wonderful work on that too.
1: Oh well, God, I, yes.
0: I enough know he was also a Kubert student. So, Interesting.
1: yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. crazy. Now yeah. was there were pages of Hawk World or Hawk Man, I'm not sure, in the inspiration for London's Bar, The Bucket of Suds, one of our favorite Hangouts. Um, and was that was that Tim art or was that uh, Graham art?
0: That was Graham. Uh, first of all, I miss The Bucket. And I miss The Bucket of Suds for so many reasons. And you should just do a show about
1: that. No kidding, have, man. No and- lie. You, I'd get you. I would get John on. I would get several of my XRT buddies on. Uh, and you're Absolutely. right, because Joe, who ran the bucket, was like this amazing guru. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I like I said, I, I caught the tail end of it. So I really, I, I, I would be a student uh, listening to your guys' stories.
0: We, you know, we held a party there every year right before the Chicago Comic Con. Um, it was a small invitational party for about 40 people. Um, but but the people who would hang out there. I mean, let's let's remember we have to be respectful to the audience. The people who hung out at the bar that did not have a sign in front of it saying "bucket of suds" or anything else, it had a doorbell that you had to ring.
1: Yep. So you go downstairs to get into it. Yep.
0: And the people who hung out there were lawyers and poets and bikers <laughs> and writers and. Uh, then the comics community.
1: Yep, and the DJs. And the DJs from XRT that were a block and a half away. A block and a half away.
0: And, and, you know, we, we wrote Charlie uh, Charlie Myerson into it. Charlie was yes. in, was one of the newsmen over at XRT at that Absolutely. time. Absolutely.
1: Yes, did I love big, Charlie.
0: Big comics fan. Yes. Oh, dear and close friend for decades. Uh, he Every time I go into town, if assuming I have time, which means convention not... Um, you know, Charlie and, and Frankie Lee is a big science fiction and comics fan.
1: One of my best friends in radio, Frankie Lee. Absolutely.
0: One of the best guys on the planet.
1: Damn straight. Absolutely, uh, man. I love that guy, too. Absolutely. You and Tom Marker were my two favorite uh, personalities at XRT and got very close to both of them.
0: They both did wonderful shows and yes and and frankie still does uh, he blew this whole retirement thing. he never figured out how how to (laughs) actually retire totally failed on that he's doing weekends and he does a couple of those nostalgia shows it's great and i listen to him
1: oh sure and you know Tom, tom does the same thing and and really again uh for for younger listeners this you know XRT was this you know really signature rock station and you really felt the personalities were curating their shows and they were responsible for the playlists of the music they were playing and there were I mean really Norm Weiner another good friend and again a good guy uh, you know he he ran it he had an iron fist on that format but you did feel a flavor I mean there was a, there was wiggle room of. Five songs to choose from each each uh, time you'd play a song, and that's why, like, they would have very distinct sounds to them. And as a kid, this uh, this was mind blowing. I mean, and this is when radio still was vital and mattered. And I say that as someone, as we were talking off the air, you know, who's you know getting a little tired of the merry-go-round, frankly, and the homogenization of radio. And XRT was one of those last holdouts into the two thousands that still had a very distinct sound because of its DJs, their knowledge of the music. And uh, yeah, so I mean, they they really were beyond DJs, radio hosts that I, you appreciated their taste.
0: I think that WXRT still is. It's nowhere near as strong for me as it used to be, but compared to the rest of radio, of, of broadcast radio, it's it still occupies that relative place. Yes, and it's it's still absolutely worth listening to. Um, it's on Radio dot com. And, yes. but when you, when, you, when you think about it, it's one of the old CBS stations, and the fact that they're doing what they're doing today for Entercom, which is now what CBS Radio used to be, is amazing to me. I understand, and you're right. And, and the next history of broadcast rock and roll is going to have a full chapter or two on, on Terry Hammert alone.
1: Our morning person, yes, who was a the 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 great Beatle fan and a sweetheart of a lady and uh, another good friend. I, dude, I worked there for nine years, and <laughs> I'm so I feel so fortunate to have been a spear carrier, to put it in stage terms, to yeah. these great stars of XRT and yeah. and become friends with them, and they are still my friends. And I get you know there's the great uh, there's a great music uh, place uh, in Berwyn called Fitzgeralds. And that's that's still a big XRT hangout. And when they have their 4th of July music festival, that's usually reunion time for all my XRT friends. And we all get together, not only on-air people, but support people and salespeople. Because it was. It was just this field of hipsters but like in the best sense of the word, not douchey hipsters, but really taste makers. No, there's there's I, a modern there's a modern phrase to describe the culture of XRT, and I'm so glad to have been a small part of it for nine oh, years.
0: God, yes. Uh, and I was actually hoping to get to Fitzgerald's this year um, for, on, on the 4th. Sure. That's very yeah, much. Yeah, yeah probably At- not
1: going to. You know what's great? Fitzgerald's is holding – much like a bunch of other venues, online yeah. events with their with their go to bands, and I I know I got an e blast on a couple things. So uh, yeah, you know it's uh, I, I I hope they survive. I think they will for the virus and stuff. And yeah, one of the one of the best kept secrets as far as a great music venue in like you were saying the collar the collar uh, towns around Chicago and stuff. be one of them.
0: Absolutely. I'll tell you a quick story about Terry uh, that I'm I'm may have mentioned to you before uh, but that never stopped me uh when i was at wgld i was doing weekend overnights which is a lot like being lamont Cranston. I mean, <laughs> it's like and that's that was fine by me but towards the end of that period that's when terry got her job as like the receptionist at wgld
1: wow i didn't know she worked there that's fantastic go on
0: and I never met
1: her there. Oh my god! Of course, because you're working weekend overnights.
0: I'm working weekend overnights. Yeah, that was that was funny.
1: Hilarious. You know, she and I are teaching at Columbia College this semester, and that is hilarious. And I I haven't run into her, but I've run into a couple of her teaching assistants. And I'm like, oh, please let Terry know that you know I wish her well and everything. No, she's amazing. She's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Enough said.
0: She most certainly is, and she most certainly deserves it. Yeah. One of the and and you know we we both have many many friends over at WXRT, so we're not I'm not putting anybody down.
1: Oh no, of course not. Terry, Terry is something else. Yeah, no, she's and a Chicago Terry icon. She really is.
0: Plays such an important role in getting women involved in in, in being disc jockeys. Before that, WXRT got a couple of the women from their original. On the air crew from WSVM, which was... Smack
1: dab-, dab in the middle. SDM. Absolutely. Go on.
0: Owned by the Chess Brothers at first. Yes. Um,
1: That's right. From Chess Records, everybody. Cadillac Records, if you remember the movie, the great blues label of Chicago that had Muddy Waters and Chuck Berry and uh, Howling Wolf and all these amazing people. And Bo Diddley, come on! And of course, the great Bo Diddley. Shame on me. <laughs>
0: yeah, Bo said about the Chess Brothers. He said, uh, "And Bo is an ordinary guy, but great." He said, uh, "Yeah, they, Chess Brothers ripped us off less than
1: anybody else." Exactly. <laughs> that was great. That movie, that Cadillac Records, pretty good movie. Pretty, pretty decent. you know, for being having that Hollywood fuzz to it, but pretty good. Pretty not bad.
0: Yeah, I, I'm a little annoyed at the, the way they handle the time framing. But but other than that, it's a, it's a very good movie. And the story is legendary. But WSTM had this this crew of all-women disc jockeys yep. play, playing jazz. Yep, And, and we, we don't think of that as a great moment in feminist broadcast history because they were referred to as the Den Bunnies. Jeez. However, at least two of... Their disk jockeys got their start there and went on to the XRT uh, or GLD and or XRT. And Linda um, Ellerbee got her start there.
1: Yeah, the new the great newswoman uh, of uh, you know NBC. Yes, and oh. I and I and I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah, I think it's amazing you got to work with her. Patty Hayes, another great Chicago yes. uh, led rock you know female uh, jock legend and stuff, started at STM. I know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was a very important station, but we tend to cringe a little bit because you know. I mean, it was so much a product of the '60s, you know. And I'm not talking about like the hippie '60s. I'm talking about like, you know, Frank Sinatra '60s.
1: Okay, okay. You know, and then you know, I only remember it as a rock station, so I I don't know its cocktail generation. Uh, you know, existence. I, 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 you know, I was too young. I didn't know about that.
0: Oh, sure. WVON, which the Chess Brothers also owned, was there to play the 45s, the blues stuff, uh, the r and stuff, mm-hmm. rock and roll stuff. But SDM was there to play the, the jazz side of the catalog. And, you know, the harder blues side of the catalog that fits in with the jazz stuff. it, it, it WVN was was critical to me. My sister, as I mentioned, was seven years older than me, and she listened to WVN. V-O-N. I grew up with rock and roll in the house before WLS went top forty in
1: nineteen sixty one, nineteen sixty. Wow! Yeah, yeah. Well, and VON for people who don't know was an ur- and still is uh, an urban station. Um, and you know, like you said, yeah, their their backbone was. Uh, rhythm and Blues got to meet uh, the Iceman, Jerry Butler, uh, back in the 90s, which was such a thrill. Uh, and then some of the others uh, that were important to the the record scene uh, of, the, of the 50s and 60s. And it just, uh, you know, honestly, Mike, there's another subject that needs to happen is like Chicago's importance to the music industry. And especially in that 60s, 70s period, you know, Tom Joyner and uh, all, all the, all the great, you know, JBC and, uh, all those, I mean, the Johnson company, the, the company that makes, uh, products for African-Americans, uh, for their hair and for, you know, makeup for women and stuff. They were a huge part of soul train soul train, of course, originated in Chicago the first year and then moved to LA. But that's the thing that black power in the sixties and seventies, Chicago was a massive major hub for that. And, and, it, and I think it's a story that really hasn't been told properly.
0: Uh, it's a complicated story and, there's, and it's hard to tell without leaving major elements out so a lot of people have to like they, they'll do it and then they hit their foreheads going like but I didn't do that <laughs> you know it's a big big story I can't wrap my head around the whole thing but I've got a lot of obscure nooks and crannies as well I, I worked with uh, uh, the the, the um, with Muhammad Ali
1: and with the uh, the, oh, the- for for the for the Treasury edition of Superman versus Zali. Yeah, well, let's talk about that if you if you don't mind.
0: Before that, I knew I, I met him. All right, I'll tell you my 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 first the first time I met him was I was walking down 63rd Street. I was a teenager. Uh, he was heavyweight champion of the world, but uh, he didn't always have an entourage around him, and. I was walking one way from this from this restaurant towards the L at University Station, which is no longer there. Right, right. And he was walking out of his gym. And I, I'm this kid, right? And I go, you're, you're Muhammad Ali. And he, go, and he smiles and says, yes, I am. And we shook hands. It was the limpest handshake I ever and <laughs> And 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 it occurred to me, why? No, no, no. He presses for a living, man. <laughs> well, exactly,
1: man. He's got to protect his hands. Absolutely. And it's, time, when it's when he uses his hands, he's making millions. Absolutely.
0: So back in the early 70s, <laughs> early to mid-70s, I was working with a friend of mine who was uh, an attorney. Uh, worked on uh, juvenile rights legislation and, and the like. He was okay. a very, very good man. And Ali's attorney was in the next door was in the uh, in the suite next to my, my my lawyers. So he and I are working really late one day, and uh, I got to get home. Okay, fine. It's not far from the L. No, not a problem. I I, I see the elevator doors closing when I leave the office, and uh, in my mind, that's going to be the last elevator for the day. <laughs> you know, it's not going to work after this one. Please hold the elevator! I shout. And, and this mob comes around from the out of the elevator and holds open the door. And I go in and I turn to thank the guy. And it's Muhammad Ali. Wow. And I swear to you, I did a double take. <laughs> you're 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 And he had a big shitting grin. It was just beautiful. And it was my relationship with his attorney that allowed us to do some of the stunts, including one big one with of cups in it. That um, promoted the Superman versus Muhammad Ali book, so th- that all worked out well.
1: Irv Cupson, for people who don't know, great gossip columnist of Chicago in the tradition of Walter Winchell and Earl Wilson, and when when newspaper columnists were again tastemakers and. The people that you know read newspapers. They would read that to see, oh, Bill Cosby's in town. Hey, just caught Bob Newhart. Uh, Lenny Bruce just uh, was arrested. Uh, yeah. Oh, I saw so and so, you know, at the pump room tonight having cocktails with Lauren Bacall. Sinatra was in town. Irv was an incredible media force. The newspaper column was his main thing, but he also had a television show. He was on radio. He called Bears games with Jack Brickhouse. Uh, he was he was one of those great. Uh, journalist titans and again yeah. one of those guys that I'm pleased I got to meet before he passed away and yeah I mean I, I really man I am Forrest Gump I have walked with titans and it, <laughs> I, it truly I, and that's what I do I really because my friends are like god you've met everybody and I'm like yeah I'm fucking Forrest Gump I, I don't know what happened but I really I mean Studs Terkel another great Chicagoan okay. that I got to hang out with and and you know spend time with Ali. I have my own Ali stories I'll leave for another time people on the air have heard those but yeah, man. No, I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean.
0: Well, you know, Irv also played um, football. College football it was a co- big college football.
1: That's uh, cool. I didn't know that. That's and, fantastic.
0: Yeah, so,
1: so, so, so yeah. You, what kind of what kind of interesting promotional things did you do with Ali and Cup? He,
0: uh, the lawyer, and I had worked out this concept that Ali would do this press conference and he would talk about the book. But he would not talk about his upcoming fight, which was in, like, three or four weeks.
1: Leon Spinks, right?
0: Yeah. And he, um, the press conference, we had wall-to-wall humanity. I mean, they, they, Jeanette introduced Ali, but not a single camera was on her. The lights didn't go on until Ali got to the microphone. (laughs) And, uh. That was remarkable. Neil Adams and I had a conflict over that for a while because he wanted to be up there, and I said, "You're not going to film you," and and we don't have the time, you know. And <laughs> okay, that was another thing. But we had worked this thing out, and uh, and all the questions, of course, are for are about the fight, the upcoming fight. And he says, no, "I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about this about Superman." <laughs> Meanwhile, the the head of publicity for Warner Brothers is in the room ordering me to put up a Superman the Movie poster so that it would be in the shot. And I said, no, we're not going to do that because we're here to sell comic books. And I knew what was going to happen next, but I didn't want to tell anybody because I didn't want word to get out. And he says, well, we really want to push this movie. And I said, you know, we, we've never had an opportunity to sell comic books like this before. And Jeanette and Saul Harrison, who was president of the company backed me, uh, for which I am, I will be forever grateful because I was out on a, on a, on a, on a limb there. And that's what happened. Ali refused to talk about the fight, did talk about the comic book. And on the front page of every newspaper, in the known galaxy, maybe even other dimensions. The front page story was Ali Does Not Talk. <laughs> and you get to paragraph two, where you look at the artwork with the story, and there's our comic book in every newspaper in America. Wow. And the guy who I had stiffed from Warner Brothers called me up, said, Oh, you did the right thing. That was perfect. That was great.
1: And that That's was awesome.
0: That was wonderful. Yeah, I know. that was, that was just perfect. It's because not only did I go way
1: out on a limb for this stunt, but I, I it paid back for me. That was wonderful. Was was Don King at that stuff? Because I've seen. What? Am I right that I've seen photographs of Superman or of Ali? Not Superman, uh, of Ali holding the comic. And I thought I remember seeing uh, King in some some pictures with the comic book there. Am I right?
0: Yes. And he uh, offered me a job. (laughs) Uh, uh, His handshake was like shaking hands with a man made of granite. And all I can think of is, keep on smiling, this guy's killed somebody.
1: Mike, 100%, once again, another titan I've walked with, and even got to play with on the radio and imitate him to his face, and I will never forget those dead eyes, and he laughed and was really a good sport about it, well, my goodness, I mean, you know, it was really easy for me to slip into Don King, and he was not offended, he loved it, he started quoting Shakespeare to me, you gotta do it this way, and I'm like, okay, absolutely, and it was a delight in sports radio, but I've been to enough fight promotions and seen him in action. And you're right, man. Gangster. Not not your rap star gangster, real gangster, manslaughter gangster, numbers runner gangster. Yeah. Don King is the real thing. And it's <laughs> still alive and and but not the force he once was in boxing, still hanging on. But uh yeah, and I can only imagine because that's literally right when his ascent. To really dominating the sport as a promoter and stuff was was in that period when the Superman Ali book was out.
0: Well, top rank, top rank was also at that. Process.
1: Yes, Bob Arum, sure. And Bob also offered me a job. <laughs> Jesus, man, that's hilarious! And again, another guy that I've hung out with. Oh, hey, how are you? We want to want yeah. to come work for us.
0: Yeah, you talk to him and you feel like you've just gone back in time.
1: Damon Runyon, yeah, <laughs> man, again. <laughs> He, my my buddy John Saraceno, a great sports writer with long hair and a beard, and I remember in the early '90s, John would show up at a press conference and he'd say, "Oh look, here he is, Bram Stoker's Dracula," because he looked like Gary Oldman. In- uh, and it was no, I Bob's hilarious, But and I Bob again, another guy in, in pushing ninety, still still a very big part of boxing and sharp as ever, still still knows exactly what he's doing. How old was Bert Sugar when he died? Seventy six, I wanna say, around 2012 or 13.
0: Because he he, he kind of looked like he was about, you know, 190. Oh
1: god, well, you know, Bert man, Bert loved to drink and he smoked, yeah. and it, that's what killed him was the smoking. And yeah. oh god, man, we would go literally 24 hours in Vegas, and I'd be like, Bert, it's five a.m. I gotta go to bed. He, I'm not me, I'm staying up. I gotta be on Good Morning in America to promote this fight in two hours. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm literally like forty years younger. I'm like, all right, Bert, I'm gonna go to bed now. I'll see you later. Yeah, yeah, the best, the best. Another guy that I really miss, good friend.
0: Yeah, that was amazing, though. That was just amazing. So I'm glad you asked about the Superman Ali book to bring it back a little bit towards comics. I do want to <laughs> go on record as saying that I think that was some of Neil's finest artwork. Totally, it was a tough project to produce. And Neil was a little erratic in that he didn't quite follow, you know, Denny's scripts like at all, in and, and places. And every page would come in at a different
1: size. I mean, it was just weird. Oh, the actual, the original art was on different art size oh. pages and stuff? Yeah. Crazy. And,
0: but it was god-awful beautiful. At oh, my end, God, yes. Yes, it did. At the end of the day, the only thing that counts is the comic book is the right. end product and that was wonderful
1: and and do you and have her- any do you have any stories regarding and I'm sorry and I don't mean to inter- interrupt you but no. do you have any stories regarding the cover because I know Kubert originally did the cover and there yeah. were also a lot of celebrities that you guys wanted to represent on the cover that I, I, you know said hey, uh, no I'm not interested in being on this cover
0: yeah well you know comics were were lowbrow but um yeah, it, it's a Joe was the original artist, and I would have loved to have seen his stuff. And Neil would have loved to see his stuff. And I mean, Neil's love for Joe's Joe and his work is uh, probably exceeds mine. Um, and, and what I, little he had done uh, in, in order to show Ali's people was magnificent, but they didn't like it.
1: Interesting.
0: Wow. They didn't like it. And by the way, the next time you look at Neil's cover, I'm on it.
1: Oh, that's great, man. Hey, that's <laughs> fantastic. And I know there's several uh, DC creators that are on the on the cover. So, yeah, that's cool. By the way, if people don't know, the Welcome Back Cotter cast is on the cover. Uh, <laughs> Lucille Ball is on the cover. I know John Wayne is on the cover, but they put a mustache on him because he wasn't interested in being on the cover.
0: Right, I uh, I I sat next to um,
1: Steve Ross. Oh, that's hilarious! That's
0: and, awesome.
1: Uh, he's the guy who ran Warner Communications. Yeah, Stop. yeah, the chairman of the board. Absolutely, that's that's, that's that's fantastic.
0: Yeah, and also a man of interesting background, but nonetheless, I, I sat next to him at the Superman versus Muhammad Ali fight, and there's the evidence. <laughs> <laughs> when when Neil and, and Denny uh, went to Chicago to meet with Ali and 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 Herbert and
1: Muhammad and uh, yeah uh, the, I mean the whole group they, okay his whole yeah Ali's whole business not to rush sure
0: yeah they got there I don't want to say early you know but they went to their hotel they got up and the meeting wasn't until something like two o'clock. So Neil says, "Let's go to the Art Institute." Now, the Art Institute of Chicago is one of the most magnificent art museums I've ever been to in my life, and I've been yep. to a lot of them. Yep. And, okay, I, I got a thing for Fabergé eggs, but still, it's, it's
1: a beautiful, it's a beautiful place. Oh no, it's the, yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to sell the Art Institute on me, but yeah, you're right for the audience and stuff. It's truly. On- World-renowned, world the Art Institute in Chicago, and, and yes. If
0: after the, if, and the Blackhawks are in the finals. Uh, they'll put a Blackhawk helmet over the, li-
1: <laughs> the
0: Lions in front of them.
1: Well, and you know the Lions' connection to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. That's yeah. That, and for people who don't know, they named the Turtles after the Lions, uh, represent, I believe, the, the Lions represented on the Art Institute and stuff, and that's where the names came from. So, you know, well, or or is it the artists that are themselves like Leonardo, Donatello, and
0: it depends on who you ask.
1: There you go. Yeah, I'm well, Got to get the the story from Kevin Eastman or Peter Laird. I guess they'll tell me.
0: That's right. That's right. And I got it. I got it from uh, from uh, Eastman. I will not reveal that. You play with that one. That's fun. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> but the lions, lions go back to like about the second or third year the art institute was built, which was before the turn of the last century. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, it's yes. it's just it's 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 stunning. But Denny and, and and Neil went to the art institute to kill some time. And as Denny told me, I've never discussed this with Neil. Denny said, "Yeah, and we went to." through the entire place, and Neil pointed out to me what was wrong with each and every item. <laughs> and that might be an exaggeration, but that must have been some experience, because at some point it's like, yeah, that's funny, and then after a while it's like, yeah, right. <laughs> Let's go see Muhammad Ali now.
1: <laughs> you know, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, Neil's, uh, you know, reverence for for Joe because that is one thing that I do appreciate about Neil because Neil is his be- his, his own biggest fan and that's fine because much like Muhammad Ali, Neil can back it up with the talent. Right. So I'm okay with him saying, "Guess what? I'm the best artist in this room." And it's like, yeah, you probably are. But I remember talking to him about uh, people like Kubert, uh, but also, and now I'm blanking like an idiot, the brave and bold artist, Jim Aparo. Yeah. And I'm like and I and I made the mistake of saying, "You know, his his Batman was very similar to your Batman, Neil." And uh-huh. he's like, "Oh no. Oh no, no, no. Not at all. Jim was his own man. He came before me. He's an excellent. I mean, spent like 5 minutes going, "No, no, no. Jim is great and a signature artist and I came after him." So, you're wrong." And I'm like, "I'm happy to be proven wrong. Thank you very much. You know, that's cool." And yeah, it was great to see cuz I know Jim Jim was a guy. I know only in his late 90 or in uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, when he went to a comic convention in San Diego for the first time, that's the first time he really felt love from the fans. And yes. it kind of blew him away, that he just didn't know how much he meant to us all loving his Batman, Jim Apparo. You know?
0: he, he never got out of Connecticut. I, I only saw him at the office once or twice. Um, and, and, and a magnificent artist. A truly yes. artist. Uh, I, I should point out that Neil... Um, was the only other person that I can think of to do a major NMEA story other than Joe, and Neil did it as a tribute to Joe. and That's he- excellent.
1: Wow, I didn't know that. That's amazing. That wow. Is-
0: Neil and I only got into two major arguments that I remember. The first one was that, that Ali thing. But after that – oh, no, that was the second one. The first one was um, – he said that uh, Frank Robbins, nobody bought his copies of Detective Comics, the ones that he drew. Um, and I have a huge Frank Robbins fan. A, I love Frank Robbins. Long series. list of people I'm a huge fan of, and Frank is very high on that list. Oh, yeah. So I dug out the sales figures. I brought Neil into the office, and I said, no, look, you see the sell-throughs, and again, I took, as I said a couple hours ago, that's the only part that really counted when it came to newsstand distribution. The sell-throughs on the issues that Frank drew were actually two percentage points better than the issues that. He drew. <laughs> he's looking at the numbers, is looking at the numbers, he's looking at the numbers, and he goes, "Oh, well, that's good," and he walks away. <laughs> Just Good to say something else, because this has no, shore more, uh, no, no form or shape. Uh, I was at a convention in Pittsburgh, and, like, three kids won the, the lottery or whatever to sit at the table with the pros. And the people who were sitting at that table were, were uh, Len Wein and Marv Wolfman and Paul Levitz and Jim Shooter and me. Might have been one or two other. And we're asking these kids, like, well, what do you like? What do you don't like? And, and you know, we're having a nice conversation. He says, well, you know, you, you may disagree with me here, but I, I really hate Frank Robbins' art. And the other two good kids say, yeah, we really don't like Frank's art. I felt so sorry for them because uh, I knew what was going to happen next. <laughs> everybody else on the table is going to turn on these kids and beat the ever living metaphysical shit out of them. <laughs> exactly what happened. And these, these poor kids just, they, they you know, all you told us to tell us what, tell you what we think, you know, and, well, and, and we appreciate it and we respect that. And we need to hear that stuff, but you're wrong.
1: <laughs> you know, Honestly, man, one of the first, uh, within the first year of Word Balloon, Tim Bradstreet and I are talking about Frank Robbins, and I'm like, you know, on the surface, I kind of felt the same way, although something in the back of my head kept me buying his Invaders comics, and I'm like, there's something in there, man. And I really think it might have been Marvel's uh, paper production or whatever, because I, I'm uh, and I always appreciated him as a writer because he was an excellent Batman writer as well. Absolutely. Um, but then I, uh, I know a few years later I caught his Johnny Hazard comic strips reprinted in I forget which, uh, soft cover, uh, big sized, you know, things would reprint the strips. And it's like, oh my god, and it's you know, you see the connection of that stuff that was 20 years earlier and his invader stuff, and I'm like. Oh, I get it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, and ever since then, I I I sing the praises of Frank Robinson. I'm like, "God, and I, like I said, there was just something in the back of my brain going, I'm going to keep buying this book." And it was certainly Roy's uh, stories of the Invaders helped, but I also there was something about that art that I could not get out of my head. And it, and and like I said, then you see him in Johnny Hazard when it's totally him and it's like, "Oh, that that's beautiful stuff, man."
0: The drawback on that Invaders work on his, on all of Frank's work for uh, artwork for Marvel, is that he didn't ink it himself.
1: That's what I figured. Yeah,
0: and and that is a mistake because it would probably be faster if he inked it than he gave it to any other human being, uh, and it would look better. But it's hard to fault. I'm assuming Roy was the editor. It's hard to to, to fault him because the guy who did ink a lot of that was Leonard Starr.
1: Wow! <laughs> wow! Another great comic strip oh, genius. Oh, genius,
0: absolutely. And and he got it started at, in in the comic books. Did a lot of work for DC in the early fifties. Uh, wow. really, his studio was uh, about a mile from where I live right but now. I
1: was going to ask Mike in Connecticut. Were you? I read Cullen Murphy's book Cartoon County, mm-hmm. and and I love it. And are you are you in that same town or close enough to it? Oh, yeah, um,
0: the reason I, uh, why i I'm, I'm living in Connecticut is because when when Dick suggested I move here instead of to New York, um, I said, well, "Well, you live in Connecticut, you just want to keep an eye on me?" And he says, "No, no." and he stops and he says, "Well, yeah, that too, but you like these old farts, and you should meet as many of them as you can while they're still
1: alive Yeah, all the great comic strip people were living In this area of Connecticut And and for people listening, I've tried to get Cullen Murphy on the show, because I'd love to talk to him About the book, the book's incredible Cartoon County, came out about three years ago I want to say, and uh, it is So great, because it's uh, His father, John Cullen Murphy Was a big comic strip uh, artist Took over Prince Valiant for Hal, from Hal Foster And had his great, uh, of course I'm Being a boxing fan myself His great boxing strip, Big Ben Bolt um, so Cullen grew up watching his dad and all these great, you know, uh, more, more Walker and Dick Brown, you know, Beetle Bailey, Hagar the horrible, all these guys doing these amazing comic strips. Didn't Kurt Swan also live there?
0: Kurt lived, um, about, about a mile from me.
1: Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I mean, all these amazing comic book and comic strip artists all living in the same town and just, yeah, the, the stories about, you know, uh, taking photographs for each other for for their strips to pose and whatever, and just the lifestyle and everything—it's fascinating. It's an excellent book.
0: Well, you mentioned Big Ben Bolt, which was a beautiful strip. Yes, and when um, John got—I think he got sick. I, I don't recall. Maybe it was just a vacation. Um, Neil Adams filled in for him.
1: I he didn't ghosted.
0: know that. Yeah. And wow. Neil at his start. Probably was an assistant there. I wouldn't be surprised. That that seems to be to to sit well in my memory. But I may have the timing wrong on this. But after he left to do Prince Valiant, King kept the strip alive for a while, and Joe Kubert drew it for a while. I think he was the first guy after Murphy to draw to draw Big Ben Bolt, and he these these. horizontal panels and just some beautiful stuff. Uh, Joe did, Joe's done more work in newspapers than, than people tend to remember because he did some fill-in stuff. You'd see it and you go, well, that's Joe Kubert," or it's the school. Now, I have this theory that Joe actually never had any
1: children. <laughs> Adam and Andy will be a little surprised to go on.
0: That is just a convenience those names because he just did all that work <laughs> that, that, that's all there is to it i and i've told that to his kids i said well you what do you get a licensing fee or what and um he stopped talking to me but still it was a good <laughs> <laughs> Man,
1: there's another big regret i got to i got to have a couple uh convention conversations with joe and uh uh, my connection with him was I—I I had interviewed in high for my high school radio station. Norman Maurer, his great oh. partner at St. John's, and all of the great 3D comics that they did, uh, and also, uh, Nor, you know, Norm's Norm's connection to the Three Stooges—that he was most son-in-law and their business manager for like the last fifteen years of their careers, yeah. and and it's and yeah, and I oh, and it's before I really put the connection. I only knew Norman from his Three Stooges stuff. So, you know, when I then met Joe and I'm like, oh, if I knew then what I know now, I would have totally asked Norman about St. John's and the whole, you know, 3D comics boom and bust. And uh, and just and of course, I'd want to, you know, I, I did get a few Three Stooges stories about him because um, Joan, uh, his wife had had Moe's daughter had written her Three Stooges scrapbook. Yeah. And and then that's why we had her uh, be on our high school station and stuff. And they were they were very Absolutely. sweet. Very, very sweet. That's, to come on.
0: that's that's really terrific wow so yeah i, I love that book of hers and so um, oh yeah uh, i never met mo i wish i did of course i wish i did
1: oh yeah man well that's why i wanted i wanted cubit's like tell me about mo he goes oh yeah it was really interesting He was very serious guy very for being a comedian very serious guy and um that that fairly brothers three stooges movie had just come out and i'm like so what'd you think and he goes you know, it was okay. He goes, you know, they, they got the pacing of like how a, how a three stooges comedy would work. And he said, you know, it was, you know, he goes, it's got its flaws. He said, but I appreciate the effort. He goes, I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a good risk. And you know, he goes, at least they tried. And he goes, they, they, they caught a little bit of the spirit of what, what they were doing.
0: So, yeah, I think they did a pretty good job yeah. considered. Absolutely. Do you know the stories about Archer St.
1: John and his brother? No, go for, go for it. Why not? Oh, the
0: story, uh, We would spend three more hours just talking <laughs> about it. I
1: so, understand. Another one text you, Mike, so it's okay. We, should, we can save for another day. So I,
0: uh, I encourage you and I encourage all you listeners out there to Google Archer St. John and read the story about him and his brother. And I'm just going to leave it at that. I guarantee you it'll be worth your time. Cool it is absolutely fascinating even more so if you're into comics which if you think about it why are you listening to the show if you're not
1: I have a feeling they're here because of that yes and <laughs> <laughs> you know but it's an if you're
0: Chicago and even more so it is a phenomenal story you have to read it
1: that's cool man no I agree and then all those 50s. Lev Gleason and all those of uh, those guys that were part of the fifties comic scene. There's a lot of interesting skeletons in those closets and a lot of scandal and uh, again an outlaw medium.
0: Well, let me tell you, it was not Bill Gaines that they were trying that that the industry was afraid of during the Wortham days.
1: It was Leb Gleason. Interesting. Crime doesn't well, pay.
0: Bill was going to to cause problems but lev was a communist
1: as in member of cpusa i've never heard that before the guy who made crime does not pay yeah. crime buster the original daredevil yeah yeah i never knew he was a communist that's amazing
0: and if that and he was involved in in many um very far left wing publications by the standards of that time
1: nothing. interesting
0: and um they were afraid that that would get out that, that one of these guys it's the 1950s one of these guys would would do his research which they didn't and uh, amazingly and find out that this guy was a card carrying Tommy wow and wow and, uh, John Goldwater who, who I actually had this conversation with the, Gold-
1: the current the current John Goldwater of Archie Comics.
0: No, the his the 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 co-founder of of Archie
1: Comics. Right, go on. Okay, go on.
0: Yeah, uh, I met him once at Archie Comics. Oddly enough, this is before he's he sued um, his son. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's another story. But get- but uh, he. Um, Uh, he was in, he had his own little office. He was there like once a week and he happened to be there one time when I was there and he and I just had about a 20 minute conversation. He was very brusque, a guy who was not happy about hardly anything, but he did talk about Lev Gleason When I asked, I said, well, were you worried that they would find out the truth about Lev Gleason?" or however I phrased it? All his eyes rolled. He was about 150 years old, so I thought he was going to have a heart attack. And he's the guy who wrote the comics, code, the original comics. Code. Right, right. You know, the one that Frank Miller tore up at the San Diego Comic Con. <laughs> in
1: seen front, that
0: video, yes. In front of John's um, uh, brother, who I was standing next to at the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> the stories, man. Wow, that's amazing. Jesus. Were you, uh, you know, we just lost him in December, Victor Gorlick. Uh, Were you you friendly with Victor? Did you know Victor? Yes.
0: He and I served on a committee with, um, oh, let me think, Mark Ruhnwald and uh, Alan Harvey uh, to rewrite the Comics Code. Wow. And we did rewrite the Comics Code, and then the Comics Code promptly ignored it, and then within about a year, everybody had quit
1: Oh, the publishers have quit. Sure, sure. Interesting.
0: But Victor and I, we, we knew each other pretty well. I mean, I hadn't seen him in the last maybe five years of his life. But when they were doing a lot of conventions, and he was still doing a lot of conventions, we'd renew our friendship, love the guy. Um, he colored one of my favorite comic stories, which was written by Jerry Siegel. It was an issue of the Mighty Crusaders in the 1960s, like issue Mm 4 or 5. And the story was called Too Many Heroes, where all of the MLJ characters, superheroes, all the costume characters, met one another. And it wound up, and I have no idea if this was on purpose, but it wound up being a parody of of Marvel in in general. And what DC was trying to imitate and why it never came off. So if you go back and read that story, on one level, it's it's very very funny. Paul Reinman was the artist, and Jerry Siegel was the was the was the writer, and and Victor was one of his early um, coloring jobs uh, for for Archie. And so when he when he passed, I, I I I actually whipped that one out and reread it in in his honor. He was a good guy, great sense of humor. Uh, one of those thick New York accents. That, oh, yeah. You know, oh, that was great. It
1: was he, great. I, I, I lucked out and, and interviewed him Uh, the year that was the uh, 40th anniversary of Sugar Sugar. Ah. And I'm like, oh, I got to talk to Victor yeah. about this, because I knew he was there when it happened and everything. And, and just how, you know, game-changing that was for uh, Archie Comics. And, God, I mean, I watched that cartoon, Everything's Archie, and, and all of that stuff. And I was the perfect age because I mean I was as I told Victor I'm like, hey man, I'm a member of the Archie fan club. I had my membership. I, I wish I could hung to my membership card, but I certainly had it. And that was one of the coolest things ever to come through the mail to you know this under ten year old kid that I you know, was like, wow, I'm in the Archie club. That's amazing. Yeah, so yeah. that was as opposed to being in Foom, you know, Friends of Old Marvel, and uh, yeah. you know some of the other things. Yeah, I was I was an Archie guy.
0: Well, I. I uh, w- 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 Still am, I remain, a big fan of the 1940s and 50s Archie stories and some of the experimentation stuff they did in the late 50s and early 60s. I think that Bob Montana is one of the most underrated people, uh, most ignored people in comics history. Agreed. He deserves to be right up there on that top ten list. Um, but, he, you know, he, he he created Archie, so nobody thinks about him.
1: And right. That- no, and Archie's Go a shame. ahead, go ahead. That's just that's just a shame. that's uh, my- wrong? You're right, man. And that's truly. I have a lot of people that are uh, aligned to modern, modern Archie, like Mike Mike Pellerito and Alex Segura, oh, and yeah. uh, you know, I mean, they're 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 the trustees now, and obviously worked with Victor and everything. Victor was really that last connection to those those great decades. And I no, I I think Archie is always an afterthought, certainly in the direct market. And then man I remember a couple years ago uh that one of those rare times when Archie like pounded his their fists on the on the table because it's like oh you know this it was back when uh all the new comics were finally like breaking 100,000 again in the early 2000s mm-hmm. and it's like uh you know we sell a quarter of a million archies in supermarkets and newsstands still and everywhere else that comics don't sell uh but just thought we'd remind everybody and it's like yeah that's right because okay. they're right for different kids and they're there. They're an impulse buy for mom when she's in line in the supermarket, and it worked forever. And truly, the re- the revitalization of Archie, including people like we mentioned before, like Brian A- Augustin and everything. I mean, you know, Al Milgram over there, and oh yeah, you know, like Nor- uh, Paul Copperberg, He and I were just talking about the the death of Archie and the life of Archie, the married life. All that stuff is fantastic. And I and I know, uh, and certainly with the TV success too. Good lord, good way to go, Archie.
0: Well, Kupperberg, of course, killed off Miss Grundy, so he—he's yeah. going he's gonna to be smoking a turban.
1: <laughs> the blood well, is on his hands. Yes, <laughs> the blood is on his
0: hands. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's the first time they've come close to being contemporary since about 1960. they are always sort of ten or fifteen years behind the, the, reality. the reality. They were—they were, they were there in the forties. And almost there in the 50s. And then they kind of lost their way. But they still did great stories. They were funny stories. They were clever stories. And by the way, I had mentioned that TV Guide bought that space for the for their – Yes. At the checkout racks at the supermarkets. So did Archie.
1: Right. There you go. Yeah, Made man. That space. And, 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 yeah, and and it paid off. I mean, it was huge. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. You know, and it's – I mean – Absolutely. goddamn! I mean, and, and that's why I, I'm like, yeah, don't, you know, at like Newsarama And I and I'm my friend. I used to be part of Newsarama But uh I remember in the in the talk back they had like acknowledged some like maybe it was Betty and Veronica number 275 or something. Well, why are we talking about Archie? And it's like, uh, because Archie's a vital part of the comics community. I'm sorry you don't see it that way. But the real people that are the real players, it's like, yeah, Archie, Archie's pretty important, man. That great book, uh, Tencent Archie that mm-hmm. that looked at the 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 50s decade I think in maybe 50s and 60s it's been a while since I read it but oh god yeah man I I I'm with you on Archie man
0: Archie has been in print entertaining people every day since the early 40s I mean 41 42 yep the only other characters you can say that about are superman and batman I think it predates Wonder Woman, but we'll give you Wonder Woman. Sure. And, and Green Arrow and Aquaman. All the other characters either had, were interrupted or faded away.
1: Yeah. No, you're right about that. Well, and even, and I love their success now with Riverdale and Sabrina on Netflix and uh, Katie Keen now on, on CW. But it's like, you know, during the golden age of radio, Archie was a sitcom for 10 years. That's right. You know, it's like, uh, this is nothing new for Archie breaking into mainstream media, uh, the way that it has currently on television. It's like, you know, when radio was the thing and the only thing, Archie was right there on the radio every week as well. It's, it's amazing.
0: And they had a couple of TV pilots uh, that that didn't, didn't go very far, weren't really great in my opinion, but you know, there were pilots. They could have been, um, and, and a lot of top-notch characters like Dick Tracy in the 50s and the Phantom in the 50s, they all had pilots. And Wonder Woman before Linda Carter. Uh, you know, I mean, right. that was a level. That was a step. And as you say, the, the show was on Bob Hastings. Was, yes. Who was a very, very gifted actor. Um, that was on for a decade. I yeah. I mean, it was a, it was wonderful there were that was at a point in time when Superman was on, but the Batman pilot failed
1: right. The old radio Batman, yes, indeed. yep. no, yeah, you know and- it's funny. there's a syndicated show. I don't know if they play it out by you, but uh, BBM plays it uh five nights a week at midnight when when radio was, and every Wednesday they run uh, an episode of the Superman serial, yeah. and uh, I remember a few months ago working in overnight at BBM. And uh, it was uh, it was when Batman and Robin were guest starring. And it was fantastic. Yeah, it was great.
0: It, uh, it's on uh, Sirius XM.
1: Oh, of course so, it is. Of course it is.
0: So it, and they have a whole radio, old radio, old time radio channel. Channel, which yes. Is, which is wonderful. I'm a huge Jack Benny fan.
1: Me too, man. No, great writing. Especially, like, the variety show versions are okay. But for me, it's the sitcom at home. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, behind the scenes of the show. We got to get the show ready, Rochester. You know, absolutely.
0: Oh, and, and Benny was such an influence. Uh, you know, Johnny Carson was his protege. Yes. And Bill Maher got his entire sense of timing and his, his posture from, from Johnny Carson. And you can see Bill Maher today doing jack benny whether he's doing it through that johnny carson filter or what the supporting cast was unbelievable the supporting cast was 10 times better than anybody else's on the in the history of broadcasting as far as i'm concerned
1: i agree Uh, funny as hell phil harris funny as hell
0: and um, jeez you know eddie anderson
1: Eddie Anderson, Rochester, absolutely great character, great actor, very great actor.
0: Mel Blanc and Frank Nelson. Yes. And if you watch some of the old TV shows, you'll see Billy Mooney.
1: Oh, that's great. I didn't know Billy Mooney did a Benny. That's fantastic. Well, I do know Harry Shearer uh, was on the radio show and on several of the early television episodes. And as an eight-year-old kid, and uh, there was a group of boys... Uh, that were called the Beavers. That were big Jack Benny fans, and right. Harry had like one of the main parts of the Beavers and stuff, which is hilarious. Harry Shearer from Spinal Tap. That's amazing.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. No, it, it truly is. I, I have. I never met Harry. I, I wish I did. I, it would be great to talk to. But Billy and I have had some conversations about about working with Jack Benny, and uh, I am envious as
1: hell. Oh God, I, yeah. Oh, I hell have, at, yeah.
0: Have, When I got into radio, I did three things as my training. I did the improv classes that I mentioned. I listened to tapes of Burns and Allen, the radio show, for timing, uh, for how to handle the job as a straight man. Because a broadcaster doing interviews and the like, you may have noticed, (laughs) is in the role of the straight
1: man. Absolutely.
0: And then Jack Benny for everything
1: yeah for everything well great writing I mean all those Milt Joseph Berg writing for Jack Benny, and then twenty years later is writing all in the family you yeah. know i i mean it's there's there's great great writers uh that started in radio and and then continued uh, Sheldon Leonard, the wonderful producer of uh dick van dyke and uh i spy and and then you know all these great sixties sitcoms and and shows and stuff. Uh, was another character actor that showed up on Jack Benny, and you know he was a radio writer while he was an actor. Graduated as a producer and produced Danny Thomas's uh, sitcom and uh, all those great '60s uh, shows like his Andy Griffith and uh, Dick up. Van Dyke.
0: Yeah. Oh my God! Yes, I have ultimate respect for for Sheldon Leonard, and yet I will stop the car and listen to him when he's on Jack Benny.
1: <laughs> as the as the bookie that uh, or the 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 racetrack uh, tout hey bud
0: yeah, yeah that was that was just brilliant that was just brilliant.
1: yeah yeah do you ever see that clip of uh carson when uh benny and uh, blank are together and they do the c routine in in front of johnny carson
0: that was the last tv show benny ever did that was his last television
1: oh yeah, wow, you're right about you know I, I remember watching the clip and seeing the date and thinking the same thing that it's like, oh, he died a few months after that, yeah that's oh. right
0: and if you notice, Benny cracks up every time he did that routine with <laughs> Mel blank, but that was the only time he forgot some of the dialogue, and Mel seamlessly covered yes yes. Well, it was it was beautiful i think we're going off into an area that, that nobody else no nah,
1: no no you know seriously man and, and i'm always happy about this half of my audience doesn't know but are happy to learn and the other half is like oh yeah i'm with you on that i mean and seriously like chris Somni, who's like 10 or 15 years younger than me at least uh you know he appreciates the old stuff and a lot of other uh younger writers and artists and stuff uh You know, uh, and and God, I just had Susan Eisenberg, uh, animated Wonder Woman, the animated Amazon, as I like to say. We were just talking about old time radio because she's with a group in L.A. um, They uh, are rewriting the uh, suspense anthology show and kind of modernizing some of the old scripts. And we're doing new versions of the stories. And they're great. They're terrific.
0: I didn't know that. Well, I have a recommendation. For all of you out there in in, in the ether <laughs> um, about Jack Benny, if, if you couldn't care less or you, you're not familiar or not as familiar as you'd like to be, there is this episode of the TV show, round 57, I think, that is the single funniest 25 minutes of television I have ever seen in my life. And arguably the funniest 25 minutes of life. And it stars Jack, of course, and his entire cast, including Mill Blanc, where they do the Seaside routine, and, uh, you know, Eddie Rochester and Frank Nelson, absolutely everybody. Billy Mooney's in it. The guest star is Louis Nye, great Louis Nye, who <laughs> most people probably ha- haven't heard of. This is a wonderful introduction to him. He plays the cab driver who is driving... Um, Jack Benny uh, uh, to the to the airport. Yes, and he refuses to leave. He he just he he hates saying goodbye, and the show is perfectly structured, perfectly written. Has the entire support cast at that time, which was huge and god awful talented. It's on YouTube find it it's it's called uh, the, uh, I, I forget the name of the now. jack benny and the and the cab driver the crying cab driver yes That's the crying cabbie it is brilliant it is worth it
1: <laughs> you know a, a new a more modern reference for louis nye of all things curb your enthusiasm he yes. played jeff garland's dad uh and until he passed away well, it was just... like his last great role. Was, uh, it's, and it's so interesting, and I love that Larry David did this. Him and Shelly Berman, another great Chicago comedian, uh, who, who, yeah, I mean, it's, and he played Larry's dad. Um, it's so great that those guys, before they were done, got one last turn at the table and stuff and could still, you know, another uh, metaphor, hit, hit the ball out of, out of the park if they needed to. Funny well, as hell, both of let, them.
0: Let me tell you my, my Shelly Berman story.
1: Please. I love Shelley Berman. And
0: I'm not in it, but my father is. There was this movie theater called the Central Park. Okay. And it's on Roosevelt Road and Central Park, oddly enough, which is about, you know, 3600 West, something like that. Um, it was the first Belbin and Katz Theater. And they made these unbelievably beautiful, movie cathedrals, but the Central Park was the first one to be air-conditioned. They had air cooling, which was nothing like air conditioning. Air conditioning was, it's Chicago, it's August, you're in a fully crowded movie theater watching movies for four hours, and you're not the least bit warm. My dad grew up going to that movie theater. It was his favorite movie theater. To which I said, yeah, because it was air conditioned. He says, yeah, of course. Fine. This is favorite movie theater. Well, in 1978, 1979, I discovered that that theater, I'd just come back from New York. I discovered that the theater is still was still around. It still is today. It's uh, a church. So I called up the pastor of the church and I said, you know, my dad used to come here and I'd I'd, I'd like to take him. He doesn't even know the building's still there. I'd like to take him back there and show him around. And the pastor was just more than pleased. He jumped out of his skin. It was wonderful. (laughs) So we go there at the appointed time and he, he gives us this. Beautiful tour of what well, was the Central Park Theater, and the seats are still there. I'm sure they'd been at least reupholstered. The place was painted white, but it was still the same place. And my father, I swear, he was like he was younger than I am now, w- which isn't hard. Most people are, but <laughs> a tear came to his eyes. That's how how moved he was by this experience. So. When we were done, you know, we walk out of the theater, out the front. And he, he turns to me and he says, that's where the delicatessen was. And I said, the delicatessen that, um, where you bought all your candy and smuggled it into the theater. And he says, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and I said, well, uh, you know who owned it? And he says, no, who? I said, the Berman family. And he says, well, yeah, it's a deli. It's a Jewish name. What do you mean? And I said, well, there was this kid who worked there named Shelly, worked for his parents. And he said, little Sheldon, which today is actually funnier than it was in 1979. If you think about it, little Sheldon, yeah, yeah, he was, he was, you know, making sandwiches at this deli next to this incredibly important, historically speaking, movie theater that my father grew up in. And and that just totally collapsed his brain. Sure. Just totally collapsed his brain. At that point, Earth ceased to exist. <laughs> I, I helped once well, to car.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know how, again, younger audiences may not know the name, but Shelley Berman, very important sketch comic of the fifties and sixties, uh, right there with Lenny Bruce and, uh, and Mort Saul and all these like great comedians and, and came out of Chicago and, uh, you know, a Bob, Newhart rival, who always felt Bob Newhart kind of stole his bit. Although Bob Newhart is the first one to say, cause they both did telephone bits yeah. and Bob's like, you know, uh, Myron Cohen was doing it like 40 years before we were on the scene. So uh, I I don't know where Shelly gets off saying that, but it was like okay, whatever. And man, I remember hearing a couple of uh, Shelley's final interviews, and he was still bitter about Newhart and stuff. And I just wanted to uh, uh, give Mike a fair a, fa- a fair farewell. And Mike, I'm really sorry. Uh, like, do you really fast? You know, do you want to mention any current projects that you might have on the horizon? I mean, we we didn't talk about your website, obviously. That that uh, a great I'm, comic site.
0: Oh well, we're doing the I'm 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 writing for. Two columns a week for pop culture um, uh, PopCultureSquad.com. Uh, Mondays is on popular culture. Thursdays is uh, a screaming thing about political issues that are dear to my heart, like saving humanity. Stuff like that. And I'm um, involved in two projects. One's publishing. One's media. And I can't talk about them. Okay. But I will... Be happy to talk about both as I can.
1: <laughs> well, that will be great in the future. Let me give you this wrap up. Uh, four years ago, I got let go from my regular radio job and I had dinner with Mike. And this was in November of 2016, I think. And I'm like, you know, man, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm not sure what I should do. Word Balloon is going great, but I really don't know. And you were the one to say, you know, something uh, I understand. And if you get another radio job, that's great. But like develop word balloon more because you got something going here and yep. you, you know and, and you saw that and honestly mike i took that to heart and four years later uh word balloon is continues to grow and i as always man i thank you for your guidance and and having that outside perspective of sizing up what i'm trying to do here and say uh you, you're doing a lot more than you think you are and you've got really great content uh i think you got something that you should really fan the flame and, and try and make it bigger
0: that's absolutely true. You this I mean this is your show. You talk to all of these people and you make it work. So I am a fan.
1: Well, it's a it's again I, I truly as a as a fan of your work for decades. It it really does mean a lot uh, that you're you know that you're behind what I'm doing and 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 happy to contribute and make it even better with these kinds cons- of conversations. So continued it, success. All right. I, I, and and I wish you all the luck uh, with the new projects, and clearly we have a hell of a lot more to talk about. So uh, maybe, maybe a couple months we'll, uh, we'll reconvene and do a new talk.
0: That's fine. And I hope to get out to Chicago as soon as I can to, uh, to see you and to, to hang out with our radio buddies. Um, maybe on uh, the 4th of July, if, if the world becomes a better place by then. Let's all hope so.
1: Here's hoping, man. Absolutely. Thanks for yeah. hanging out today. All right. Thanks. There you go, Mike Gold. I I should mention a little bit more about Pop Culture Squad because it's a great pop culture website that not only covers the comics world, but also television and film, uh, sports. Uh, The great essay right now about uh, WrestleMania last weekend uh, and how uh, strange it was and, uh, you know, uh, impressions of that. Mike writes a lot of essays as well. Uh, It's a great pop culture website that deserves your attention. Uh, that Mike has been curating for the last couple of years now, com, And thanks to Mike for a great conversation and really uh, for his friendship. It's uh, I really, it's a pleasure being friends with Mike gold and uh, hanging out with him when he comes to Chicago. And as you heard, uh, I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to uh, the day that uh, the crisis is over our own uh, crisis on uh, earth prime here. Um, and uh, you know, Getting back together with Mike and uh, sharing some stories and everything—always great talking to him, man. And uh, you can count on more conversations with Mike in the future. Um, I've, I've done some video interviews with Mike. Uh, in fact, a really fun one that we did with uh, him and uh, John Ostrander uh, back at um, Wizard Chicago a few years ago. And I'm hoping to—I got to I gotta talk to John, see, check in with him, see how he's doing. I saw him do a good post the other day on Facebook. But I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Mike Gold on today's Word Balloon. All brought to you by uh, my friends uh, with their domino masks firmly in place and their capes behind their backs, the League of Word Balloon listeners that have uh, me, uh, and they've got my back, and they've got your back too because they're supporting Word Balloon uh, through their sponsorship, executive producing Word Balloon when you really think about it. Um, And I I thank them for that because uh, this support via Patreon is coming at a tough time for me and uh, all they've done is respond positively. A lot of uh, friends have uh, upped their uh, subscriptions to Word Balloon and uh, a lot of new subscribers as well. Word Balloon is free. I keep saying it because it is. You don't have to pay for Word Balloon. And again, I know how tough things are right now financially and and how precarious it's going to be to restart the economy. If you're in a decent position and you can swing a dollar a month and you like what you hear at Word Balloon, uh, the price of a comic book a month, perhaps, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Word Balloon at patreon.com slash wordballoon. But I thank you greatly because you've all really stepped up during this time for me, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by Aftershock Comics. Aftershock Comics is a great publisher with genre-bending ideas from some of the top names in comics, and they are coming to play with really great story concepts, graphic novels, ongoing books, that are already collected in story arcs that are waiting for you to experiment with and try something new. Aftershock's got a great bath catalog that you should either be taking advantage of through your local comic shop or dealing with them directly. And I mean, you know, the names say it all. Tim Seeley, Marguerite Bennett, Garth Ennis, Brian Azzarello, Paul Jenkins, Stephanie Phillips. Great new voices in comics like Stephanie, great old standbys like Paul Jenkins and Brian Azzarello and Garth Ennis. Uh, of course Margaret Bennett you can call her an old standby at this point um, all contributing to aftershock with uh, something different not not just superheroes but but you know again great supernatural stories, great science fiction stories, great crime books like Ollie uh, Masters killer Groove one of my personal favorites of the last year don't take my word for it go to their website you'll find full story descriptions preview pages and the diamond codes on how to order these books through your local shop at aftershockcomics.com. Thanks again for listening today. Uh, I teased uh, what's coming up this week at the end of part one of Mike Gold. If you didn't hear that, I'll give it to you right now. Uh, right away, uh, expect tomorrow a great conversation with Grant Morrison and Liam Sharp about their incredible Green Lantern run. Later in the week, we should be talking to Patrick Schumacher, the showrunner of the Harley Quinn animated show. I see that somebody's texting me right now with some more information. Uh, and uh, I've got a few other things that are planned. I don't want to uh, mention them. Until they happen. But uh, more great conversations planned for this week and the whole month of April and into May. And uh, hopefully uh, this crisis won't last, uh, you know, the, the you know more than a couple more months. But uh, Word Balloon's got you covered with entertainment and distractions to get you through your days. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for your support. And thank you for your attention, as always. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2020. Stay safe and healthy.